0: Thanks Luke and the praise team. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 27 to 31 this morning. Matthew chapter 9 verses 27 to 31. My, uh, my favorite kind of movie is the kind of movie that scares you just a little bit. I'm not talking about ghosts and goblins and wicked stuff. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about the kind of movie that has you on the edge of your seat and that makes you jump a little bit every time there's a sudden blast of music or a sudden sound and that that kind of stuff. But, But really, my favorite kind of movie is one that sort of leaves you a little bit fearful throughout the whole movie, but then at the very end, there's something that changes or there's some big reveal that's given to you that makes you not afraid anymore you know it's that it's that moment in the movie where it causes you to see everything that happened before it in a completely different light than what you had seen it when you first were watching the movie uh one of my favorite uh hollywood directors is m night Shyamalan, and my, the reason that i really like him and that's not a very popular opinion i get that that's okay uh but the reason that i really i really like him is because he's particularly good at this that you, you, you kind of jump every time you see something happen on screen, but then at the very end of the movie, there's some reveal, there's some twist, there's something that happens that makes you go, I, I, I didn't know this was what was happening this whole time. It's this moment where the world as you have perceived it up to this point is not really as it really is. And the world that you didn't think was possible is actually the real world that you've been watching this entire time. He's really good at that, and I love that kind of movie. Well, this morning in our text, we're going to look at a a miracle of of healing where two blind men are healed. And it's just a few verses in Matthew, and you're tempted to, when you read it, think this is just another miracle story, right? I mean, this is just another. He opens the eyes of the blind. But this is not just another miracle story. There's something much deeper going on. And I think what we're going to see and we'll pay attention to is the shockingly deep confession of these two blind men as they encounter Jesus. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 and following. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. So, in chapter eight and nine of the Gospel of Matthew, um, Matthew puts together nine miracle stories. So, in chapters eight and nine, there are nine miracle stories. And he organizes these miracle stories in three trilogies. So, essentially, opening chapter eight, we get three miracles, and then we get a break in the action, and then we get three more miracles, and then we get another break in the action and then we get three more miracles. And so this morning, we're in the second miracle story of the last trilogy. So if you're keeping score at home, we're and you're you're a Star Wars fan, we're on Star Wars episode 8 right here, okay? You tracking with me? All right. We're on the second story Of the third trilogy. And in these miracle stories, there's really two big points that Matthew is driving home and wanting us to see. The first is that the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been preaching this whole time has a real impact on people's lives. So he's been preaching the the kingdom of heaven in chapters 4 all the way to through chapter 7. And now in chapters 8 and 9, he's showing that that kingdom that he's been preaching actually has a real-world impact. People are being healed, blind have their eyes open, the lame are walking, and there's all kinds of things that are happening as a result of Jesus bringing in the kingdom. So that's the first thing that's being driven home in these miracle stories. The second is that the miracles have demonstrated the kind of authority that Jesus has as the one bringing the kingdom. He's told us back in chapters... 4 to 7, that He's instituting this kingdom. And you should pay attention to Him because He is the King of this kingdom. Well, then it makes sense that in the miracle stories we're looking at the authority of Jesus on display. Does He really have the authority over this kingdom? It seems as though that's yet. The dead are raised. The lepers are cured. The sick are healed. And so these miracles in rapid-fire succession... Over two chapters have been to demonstrate these two big points to us. Now this final trilogy of miracles is ratcheting up the seriousness. We mentioned that last week. Last week we saw Jesus raise the dead. And this week we're looking at another miracle, uh, healing of two blind people. And, And this miracle is particularly important not because... The healing of two blind men is more impressive than the raising of the dead. Clearly, that's not true. Clearly, it, if we're ranking these on a scale of how impressed we are, raising the dead is far more impressive than healing two blind people. But, but this particular miracle is very important, not just because of the miracle that happens, but because of the confession of the men as, Jesus, as they encounter Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to just look at three... I just want to make three observations in this text. just want to look at three different highlights of this text as we go through. The first is the cry of the men. I want you to notice the cry of the men. Look in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now Jesus is on his way out of town. We know that in verse 35, he'll be going through the cities and the villages preaching the message of the kingdom, same thing here, and he's going through all the synagogues there, and so we assume that he's on his way out of town, he's moving along in that direction, and he encounters these two blind men who somehow recognize that Jesus is coming, and so they say to him, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, the title that they use for him is particularly important in the book of Matthew, Uh, the title Son of David occurs more times in Matthew than any other book, and it occurs mostly inside uh, the Gospels. We get some variation of that title in Paul where he refers to Jesus as a descendant of David, but the title Son of David occurs only in the Gospels. And so far in Matthew's Gospel, this is the second time that this title has been used. And the first time that this title was used is in verse one of chapter one, and it's used by Matthew there. He refers to Jesus there as the son of David. But this title is loaded with meaning. And it actually has a great deal to do, not only with God's kingdom, but it has a ton of things to say in our lives today. So what I want to do this morning is spend the bulk of our time unpacking this phrase, Son of David, and then considering what the biblical meaning of Son of David really is saying, and how much there actually is in that term. And so to do that, I want us to consider the biblical narrative so far, the narrative in the Old Testament. And there I want us to look at four important figures in the Old Testament that help build a foundation for the kingdom of God that Jesus ends up preaching in the New Testament. So four things, four uh, uh, central figures in the Old Testament that I want us to consider. First is Adam. The first is Adam. Now, we understand that there's no doubt God is the king over all the universe. There's no question about that. There's no contenders. There's not even a second place. God is the king over all the universe. Psalm 93, 1-2 to says this, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from Everlasting. So that being said, that God is the king over all things. He is the king over the entire universe. With all of that being said, humanity is given a special place inside God's creation. And it's given that place by God Himself. And and humanity is given the distinct role of kingship. Given the role of ruling and reigning with God. Now we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. You can write these down. They're gonna appear on the screen behind us. We're gonna go th- we're going to, as we walk through the Old Testament, you can read along with us. Genesis 1, 26 to 30. We've we've traditionally seen this as the creation of Adam and Eve, or in particular Adam. But I want you to look in this at a, in a new light. Look at what he says in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion So I want you to notice the language that God and the author of of Genesis use in this passage to describe the creation of man. First, he says man was made in God's image. And then second, he is given, we find out a little bit of what that means, he is given dominion over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So both of those we see in verse 26. And then in verse 28, he's told, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here's the key terms, subdue it and have dominion. So essentially, what we're to take away from the creation of Adam is that mankind is placed on the earth to have a type of co-regency with God. He's to have a dominion over the earth, a ruling with God. He's ruling and reigning with Him. He's to exercise dominion over the plants and over the animals and over every creeping thing that creeps. See, Adam is king. And God is ruling creation through him. Now, he's a subordinate king. He's subordinate to God himself. But he is ruling creation, and God is ruling creation through Adam. And his task is to... Take this position of authority that God has given to him and what? Spread it throughout the entire earth. And he does that by both subduing the earth, cultivating it, and having kids, multiplying. So God then is reigning through Adam over all his creation. Adam is a type of king. Now there are limits to Adam's rule, of course. First, he's to rule the earth, and he's to rule all the creatures on the earth. And then second, he's not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here's the irony in the story. Near immediately, that happens all in chapter 1 and 2, but near immediately in chapter 3, what happens? Adam and Eve, who are supposed to rule the beasts, are ruled by a beast. Here comes a snake creeping into the garden. An unclean serpent makes his way into the garden. And what does he do? He challenges God's commands. He throws it in their face. Did God really say? And Adam and Eve are standing there and both listen to the logic of the serpent and both of them imagine that their role in reigning over the earth would be much better if they were more like God. Well, if we were more like God then we would be able to do this more efficiently. Eve saw that the fruit was profitable to make one wise, and it was good for eating. And so what did she do? She took it. And what did she do then? She gave it to her husband, who was silently complicit in the whole thing, standing right there with her. And so they subvert God's authority, and they eat of the tree. So mankind is in this position where he's given this privilege Of ruling with God. But now he's in a fallen state where he knows good and evil. And once he knows good and evil, he can't unknow good and evil. And so this isn't the state that God created him in in order to rule. That's not the way he wanted mankind to rule. And so it's obvious from the story that Adam has forfeited his right... To rule as king. He has failed to institute God's kingdom and God's rule throughout the earth. But God's not finished yet. So we get to chapter 3, we get to verse 15, where God is punishing the serpent. And He says something to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. He promises this, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, his, his heel. In other words, there is an offspring coming that will rule the serpent in a way that Adam should have and could have, but didn't. And he will rule the serpent. He will crush his head. Now, it's going to cost him. It'll cost him a heel strike, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so you understand to understand the kingdom of God as it's unfolded throughout the Bible, the first foundational stone is Adam that's laid in the Old Testament. The second is Abraham. So we flash forward a few chapters into chapter 12 of Genesis, and there's this man named Abram. He comes on to the scene. And in Abram, we see something amazing. That, that God is, once again, beginning to establish dominion through mankind on the earth. But this time, instead of a singular man like Adam, it's through a nation of rulers. But see, in order to get to the nation of rulers, he has to first single out a nation. So he creates a people for himself through the one man Abram. He says this in Genesis 17:4 to 6. He tells Abram this, behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. The biggest difference between Abraham and Adam. Notice that the commands or the statements to them both are very similar. But there is a one massive difference between Abraham and Adam. And it's right there in the passage. You see that in their respective passages. Look, look at it closely. With Adam, he says be fruitful and multiply and fill. In other words, Adam, go have dominion. Go conquer. Go rule. Go subdue. But to Abraham, he says, I will multiply. I will make. I will do. Why? Because sin has entered the world. Right? Now, God has to do what man was incapable of doing. God is doing it on our behalf. He tells him, I will make you. So God is going to have to do through man what man is now incapable of doing since sin has entered the world. And so Abraham is the second foundational piece of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. The third is Israel. So Israel is essentially the nation that is created from Abraham and Sarah. He says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, But what is Israel created for? What's their purpose? What is Israel's purpose? What are they supposed to do? Well, they're to be a light to the Gentiles. Similar to what Adam was charged to do. Similar to what Abraham Abraham was told was going to happen through him. Israel is to be a light to the Gentiles. We see this in Isaiah 42, 6-7. Isaiah 42, 6-7. Now we're looking at what Israel is intended to be, what their purpose is. But he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people... A light for the nations. That word could also be Gentiles. It's the same thing. A light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. It's abundantly clear that Israel's purpose was never meant to be this nation of exclusion. Never meant to be this nation that's set apart to say, we're going to heaven and you're going to hell? That's not their purpose. It's not to deride people as they die and are punished for them. that's not that's not what their purpose is. It's to be a light to the nations and to save those who are in the dungeon. As Isaiah puts it to open the eyes of the blind, to provide a way of salvation to the nations. There is a court, or there was a court in the temple that was intended specifically for the Gentiles. They came to the temple to observe what was going on there. And there is more than some evidence in the Gospels that Israel did not like this and decided to take matters into their own hands. And we'll see this actually happen in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, ways in which Israel has just neglected this, this responsibility to be a light to the Gentiles. And they don't want the Gentiles anywhere near the temple. And so Jesus comes in. You remember this story where he turns over the tables. Well, there's evidence to suggest that they're selling sacrifices. there in the Gentile court, pushing the Gentiles outside the temple where they can no longer observe Yahweh. Where they can no longer be a light to the Gentiles. So once again... Mankind, through the nation of Israel, is neglecting its duty to become a light to the Gentiles and to extend God's kingdom throughout the earth. So Israel is the third foundational piece of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. The fourth and final one is David. God not only establishes a family through Abraham, He not only establishes a nation to be the light of the Gentiles, But he establishes a king who will sit on the throne. Now, Israel's reasons for getting a king were not good. They were improperly motivated to get a king. They wanted to rule out of fear the other nations. That wasn't the right reason. But nevertheless, God gave them a king. Saul was the first one. And of course, he disobeyed God on a multitude of occasions. And God removed him as king and removed his line. And finally, we get to David and so David comes in and unites all 12 tribes under one king, something that hadn't been done since they got into the promised land. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-16, 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, God makes a promise to David. He says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. Now, the promise to David is that not only will he spearhead the kingdom of God and will his line spearhead the kingdom of God and that it's going to be a light for God's glory to the entire world, but his line will not end. His line will always be on the throne. Now, David's line's a mixed bag. I think we know this. David's line is not all good. They're not all cut from the same cloth, so to speak. Now, David's no saint. But his sons and his grandsons, some of them sin grievously to the point where the kingdom is torn up and sold for parts. And during Jehoiakim's reign, Israel ceases to be a sovereign nation, or Judah does. Throughout a hundred and some years, they're led off into captivity in Assyria and Babylon. They're ruled by a pagan king. They don't even have a nation to rule anymore, so to speak. Much less a land to do it in. Until the first verse of Matthew. Matthew breaks the silence and he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham... And so Matthew in that first opening genealogy traces Jesus royal line all the way down to Jesus Christ. And he's making the claim that the wait is over. Listen everybody, the wait is over. The descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, the snake crusher that we read about in Genesis 3:15 is here. He's arrived on the scene. And it's this person, Jesus Christ. The prophets told us that this was going to happen in Jeremiah 38, 9. It's all over the Old Testament, but this is one of them that's the most prominent. Jeremiah 38, 9, he says, And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So, David is expected to come. And by that, we mean the son of David, one rising up who will reign, who God is going to raise up. And what do we see Jesus doing when he first steps on the scene in the Gospel of Matthew? He's preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that had its beginning as far back as Adam. And is, is now reaching fulfillment in the Holy One of God, born King of the Jews, born of the Virgin Mary, born of the line of Abraham and of David. He is Jesus of Nazareth. But look back at our text this morning. The reason that I go through all of that and spend so much time unpacking the phrase, the Son of God, is not just because of these three little words, Son of David. And not just because they're incredibly important, which they are, but because this is the second time that this phrase is used in reference to Jesus. And who's the one that says it? Two blind guys. Two blind guys. Now, this is particularly ironic because just a chapter before, the disciples who follow him everywhere are in the boat with him, as he calms the waves and the sea and the wind, and it all dies down, and what question do they ask? Who is this? They don't know. They're following him around forever, and they have no idea who he is. And here we get our text this morning. We have two blind men, who we presume cannot see, and they cry out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And notice the cry isn't heal us, Son of David. The cry is, have mercy on us, Son of David. Why do they say that? Because the Son of David's kingdom is being brought to people. And if you think back all the way to Adam, the Son of David's kingdom doesn't have any blind people in it. There are no blind people in the son of David's kingdom. Think all the way back to Adam. If Adam had exercised the dominion that God had given to him, had entrusted to him, would there be any blind people? No. Would there be any dead people? No. Would there be any lepers? Leopards, yes. Lepers, no. All of these people that Jesus is healing wouldn't have existed in Adam's kingdom. So their cry is recognizing that he is the king and he's bringing in his kingdom. And in his kingdom, there is no blind, there are no blind people. So he's crying out, or they're crying out to Jesus, have mercy on us. In other words, include us in your kingdom. See, the title Son of David to the Jewish mind is akin to the title Messiah. And it's not merely someone that has come to institute a kingdom, but someone who has come to bring in the kingdom of God that will have no end. You see, the cry of the men is about an inch wide in your Bible, but it is infinitely deep. It starts in Genesis, it culminates in Christ, and it ends in or really begins in Revelation throughout the entire Bible. Now, the last two observations I want us to make very quickly as we move to the end. First the first of the last two observations is the confession of the men. Let's look at the confession of the men. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith... Be it done to you. So Jesus takes them aside and he, he, he extracts this explicit confession from them. Do you believe? And they say, yes, we do. Now, it seems really strange that he would, that he would do this, but you can see in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in these last two chapters, that Matthew is trying to draw our attention to the faith of the people that are healed and the faith that they're demonstrating. So these men come to Jesus and they believe that He's the Son of David and that He's establishing this kingdom and they confess, yes, Lord, we believe this. Now, we're not told if they understood everything about Jesus. But Jesus says to them, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, we're not supposed to take that to mean that if you've got a little bit of faith, you'll get a little bit of sight. If you've got half faith, well, then your vision will be twenty forty. Okay, that's not... I don't think that's the way we're supposed to understand it. When it comes to faith, the concern is not the amount, but the direction. It's not the amount, it's the direction. Jesus is going to make this point later on with a mustard seed, but He's going to say it's not the amount, it is the direction. Is it squarely focused? And so, we're, we'll, like I said, we'll see this topic come up a little bit later on. But they understand the son of David to be the one bringing the kingdom and healing people. But they obviously don't have perfect faith for reasons we're about to see, which is our third observation. Look at the command of Jesus that he gives to them. In verse 30, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. So Jesus warns them not to tell anybody, but why? Well, this is part of the reason that I say their faith isn't quite perfect, we obviously see. They don't totally understand who Jesus is or they're struggling in some way. They've identified him as the son of David and that he is healing people. But you see, the connection between Jesus and the Son of David is a particularly dangerous one, especially this early in the Gospel. We're going to see this title come up later on, and it comes up when Jesus is riding into town on a donkey. They're crying out, Hosanna, and they're saying, The Son of David. They're calling him the Son of David. And we see there, Matthew mentions, that the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they become indignant that the people are attributing this title to Jesus. And they get really mad. And this provides some fuel for the crucifixion that will come a little bit later on in the gospel. And so as these men go out, more proof that they don't have at least perfect faith is that they don't obey him. Right? He's the king. The king of the whole world. He is the son of David. The one whose rule will have no end. And their first action as being one who had been beneficiaries of a healing, is to go out and disobey the king. Obvious that they don't have total faith, but they, they do understand some. And so they spread. The text literally says they spread him through all the district. We'll see the next time we get, in the next passage, the Pharisees hear this report that's coming, and, and it provides some some fuel for their animosity towards Jesus that goes throughout the rest of the book. But the point is that their faith, even though they're they're understanding more of who He is than the other people that we've seen up to this point, they obviously don't have perfect faith because they don't obey the command, only uh, they they believe that He is the King. They have the right direction of their faith. Now, the real question that we need to wrestle with is, With all of this being said, Jesus being king, Jesus being son of David, what does that actually mean for us? What does that mean for us now, today? There's a lot of things, but we'll say just a few. The kingdom of Christ has been established, and it still remains, and it is conquering more territory by the second. That's the first thing. The kingdom of God has been established through Christ, and it still remains, and it's conquering more and more territory with every passing second. I want you to think about that for just a second. Because we so often act like the kingdom left when he did. Jesus came and he established this kingdom, but then he took off. And now we're left twiddling our thumbs. We sit here and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And really what we're waiting on is we're waiting on Jesus to come back and to bring, to bring his kingdom. I want to really experience it. But you understand, people are coming into the kingdom with every passing second. And the people come into the kingdom the same way these blind men do. They acknowledge Jesus as king. And they confess that he is able to save. You get that? They acknowledge him as king and they confess that he is able to save. You you see, salvation is that moment where the blind receive sight and they recognize that Jesus has been reigning the whole time. See, he didn't just take off and the kingdom go with him. He left, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules and reigns from heaven and his kingdom is coming to fruition on earth in the here and now as men believe. See, the blind men who have their eyes opened in this passage are leading the charge for the rest of the blind people who have yet to see who Jesus is. It's quite literally the blind leading the blind. And the surprise to us is surprise Jesus has been king the whole time. That's the twist in the story. Jesus has been king the whole time. And when people come to salvation, that's what they're doing. They're opening their eyes to realize the movie that I was watching is not the movie that I thought it was. Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. Except in our case, Jesus hasn't been dead the whole time. Another reason why this is important is when we share the gospel, we're not trying to get Jesus elected because he's not running for president. We're helping others submit to his rule now. That's what we're doing. We are heralds of the good news. We're simply proclaiming to them, did you know the good news that Jesus has conquered all ruling authorities? Did you know the good news that Jesus is actually king? Did you know that? What that means is if they don't respond to that, if they refuse to submit to his rule, while it is tragic, it's not my fault. We're simply being faithful with the message that has been entrusted to us when we encounter lost people who are in despair. My friend, do you realize that Jesus is king? Do you realize that Jesus is king? This is particularly important for the unbelieving. In fact, if you're in here and you're not sure whether Jesus is king, I would challenge you to comb back through this book to take seriously the historical account. Did a guy 2,000 years ago named Jesus get up from the dead? Because if he did, then the movie you think you've been watching this whole time is not the movie that you've been watching. What you think is possible in this world, what you think is impossible in this world, is possible. Last, I think it means for us that we shouldn't spend our time bemoaning the way the country or the world is going. And the reason is because Jesus is king. And they will have their day in court. You understand that? They will have their day in court. When we gripe and when we moan and when we pound our keyboard on Facebook and we just let everybody know where we stand politically, I'm sure they all care. I'm sure they're all taking note of your opinion. But when we do that, we demonstrate to the world that we're really worried. Because you see, here are the Christians proclaiming that Jesus is king. They're over here telling us, they're preaching all the time, Jesus is king, Jesus is in control, God is in control, everything happens for a reason. They're over here saying this all the time. But then when bad things happen, where are the Christians? They're just as frustrated as everybody else. They're moaning just like everybody else. They're weeping and crying and lamenting just like everybody else. See, we say with our mouth, Jesus is king, and then we communicate with our actions and on Facebook and all kinds of other places. No, he's not. Well, is he king or isn't he? There's one really easy way to do this to kind of remedy the situation. We have these little, these little plastic devices, most of them are about this long, and on the top, usually the top right corner, there is a button that's, typically it's red, sometimes it's white, usually it says on, off, or power. And you can point it at the wall, and you can hit it, and that little rectangle that sits on your wall will just, all the voices will just disappear. That's like magic. They just stop talking. All the ones that are saying, no, 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 Jesus isn't king, no, you should really be worried about all of this stuff. No, you should really fret and moan and weep and cry over all of this that's perishing. You should really worry. Just disappears. Out in the ether somewhere. It just goes away. See, so we can turn it off, and then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit that lives inside your heart begins to speak to you, begins to remind you over and over, no, 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 no. No, no Jesus is king. All this that you're seeing play out in front of you is evidence for his courtroom. Now, I think as we think about Jesus' kingdom expanding, what we're seeing is a secret invasion. It's expanding its borders and it's moving into the hearts of men. And so what I would challenge us to have confidence in that kingdom, to believe that the eyes of the blind will be open simply at the proclamation of the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that even just reading this word will communicate to us a truth that we will understand that you reign from on high and that your kingdom has no end. that we will know without a doubt you are king over all the earth. And we will fear no longer. In Jesus' name, amen.